This is an ABC podcast. A city is a thing. And since most of the world's population now lives in cities, understanding biodiversity in the context of an urban environment is absolutely critical because most people live in cities. We're actually looking at a variety of different strategies to ensure that when we build stuff, we actually put biodiversity back in. As always, there's a new term for this. We call it green engineering. Green engineering. It might bring to mind the solar panels on your house or the water-saving showerhead you use or gas-powered buses. But what about marine green engineering? Hello, Anne Jones with you on Off Track, where I get to take RN out of the studio and into the outdoor world. Today, a story originally recorded in 2015, with an update on where we're at at the end. So you're hearing audio from the past for the most part today. When you think of any number of towns and cities across Australia, there's almost always some sort of water frontage. Sometimes it's a river or a beach Or in today's episode of Off Track, it's the harbour. Sydney's iconic harbour. And it is beautiful. But the reality of Sydney Harbour is it's an urbanised ecosystem. Buildings encroach on the shoreline right up to the edge of the water. And then there's industry and shipping and fishing and runoff and microplastics and floating chip packets and even weeds and invasive animals. It would be easy to despair about the state of this once pristine area. At the time of recording, Rebecca Morris and Ross Coleman were from the Centre for Research on Ecological Impacts of Coastal Cities and together we were wandering along the shore of Blackwattle Bay. It's also a popular jogging spot and dog park. But it wasn't always like this. Associate Professor Ross Coleman. Most of Sydney Harbour pre-European times would have been a mixture of rocky headlands, sandy beaches, small sandy beaches backed by mangroves at a creek. So if you went to many of the other non-urbanised estuaries, although they're not as big as, as Port Jackson, Sydney Harbour, you'd get a rough idea of what things would be like. But there would still be this mixture of headlands, rocky bluffs with sandy shores and mangrove creeks and the thing about Sydney Harbour is we've changed almost all of that we've got very little rocky habitat nearly all of the sandy sandy beaches have gone um, most of the mangroves have gone so we did an analysis of Sydney Harbour and this was done in 2005 and I think it's got a lot worse was something like 75 to 80 percent is reclaimed shorelines and then when we reclaim a shoreline Often we increase the amount of land by building a vertical wall and then backfilling it with sediment rather than a sloping surface leading down to the water's edge. So you actually create more buildable land. And then you also put up sea defences to protect the things you've got. So that leads to more seawalls. A seawall is an artificial defence structure that put there to protect people's houses or parks from sea level rise and wave action. Rebecca Morris is writing her PhD in marine ecology at the University of Sydney. In Sydney, they're quite often made of sandstone, all the newer ones are made of concrete, which is like this one here is concrete. They're flat, featureless structures, so they're the same along the hundreds of metres of the shore. And in Sydney, 
a majority of our foreshore now is sea walls. Actually in the city of Sydney area I could only find one or two bits of natural rocky shore. It's a problem now and it's going to become even more of a problem in the future. I did do a few sampling points before the pots went up. There were maybe nine or so species on the seawall because they haven't got all the different habitats that animals need. So you've got a few species that can live on the seawall and then you'll find one or two like randomly along the seawall of rarer species. But then you don't get the same amount that live in a rock pool or in a crevice or in a hole. And if there was all these different habitats on the seawall, then you'd have lots more biodiversity. The reality is that seawalls are here to stay. They're not going away. And in fact, people are going to have to think about sea level rise as, as a consequence of climate change. And all the models point to half to a metre rise in sea level. So many low-lying seawalls will have to be rebuilt. What low-cost additions can we offer that increase biodiversity without making the, the redevelopment so prohibitively expensive? Because if we, if we make it so expensive, to improve outcomes of biodiversity, people are just not going to do it. Whereas if we have a low cost option, where it's easy to do, then people will take it up. Enter the flower pot, the latest in habitat creation. This project was started in the centre by Professor G Chapman. She came up with the idea that by introducing microhabitats to the seawall, then it might increase the biodiversity. And then I'm doing more extensive research on how they work on the seawall and also the effect on fish. Um, part we haven't talked about is a, is a previous experiment, which was done by Professor Chapman when I arrived in Australia in, in 2005, over at Blues Point, McMahon's Point, where a seawall was being redeveloped, so there was an opportunity to build biodiversity features in. Now this was a heritage seawall so it had to have a sandstone outer part. So because it was built in two halves, essentially it had a concrete back wall and a sandstone facing wall, then by leaving blocks out, sandstone blocks, and then putting slabs in, you could create little caves and some of the caves held water and some of them didn't. And they're not really rock pools, again, they weren't trying to be rock pools, they were just water retaining features. But we found that because they were essentially caves, that the back of the rock pool didn't get natural daylight, that the assemblages of organisms we found were very different from real rock pools, but they were still organisms that weren't present if you didn't have those structures. And that was, I think, G's motivation when she found the flower pots, was what is a cheap way of putting these structures on the wall without having to rebuild a wall and I think it was a fortuitous trip to Bunnings or, or, or some other garden you know, furniture manufacturing. What are the flower pots? Because I mean we're getting a general idea of the shape just from the name but what are they actually made out of? What do they look like? They look like a flower pot but they're cut in half and they were engineered by someone called Anthony Luck and he makes them out of concrete. They're attached to the seawall with a stainless steel bar and there's a special design which makes sure that they don't pop out with waves from ferries or boats. So they're pretty thick, aren't they? They're not like a terracotta flower pot thickness. They're a lot thicker than that. Yeah, I suppose they're like, I've got a five centimetre rim and they have quite a deep concrete bit at the bottom to hold them in. So they're like weighted at the bottom with concrete. So it makes about a 30 centimetre deep rock pool then. Now, where have you placed them in terms of the height on the wall? The flower pots are placed at mid-tidal level um, because research has shown that this is the level where you will get the most response. 
So mid-tide, does that mean that every tide will come up and cover the pot? Yeah, that's right. On the really low tides, they will just cover it. And then on the high tides, it will go way over. But they'll always be covered at high tide and then uncovered at low tide. Rebecca Morris has received a grant from the City of Sydney and she's used the money to install cameras on the flower pots to see what species are using them when they're underwater. We've seen lots of small fish like gobies and blennies and bream that come in and out of the pots at high tide so I don't know if they're using it for shelter or feeding maybe. By adding these flower pots on the seawall it's not only good for algae and snails. So when you put them in, what happened first? What was the first organism to arrive? The first was a thin layer of algae and lots of little tube worms. They're just kind of like kind of spiral worms and straight small worms. And then we got some of the snails moving in from the seawall as well. And they were laying eggs there too, so that was quite cool. I was really excited when I first saw the egg in the pots and also then we got little rock pool fish come in as well and that was exciting too. So I'm surmising then that some of the algae and the eggs is actually going to be things that the fish can feed on. Yeah, I assume so. I'm not sure what the little ones feed on. Maybe they just feed on algae. Yeah, some species of fish will feed on the eggs and all the other algae species and snails. And you've been sort of surveying via the pictures as as you go along. So what's the species count at? Oh, we've got lots of fish, maybe 40 or so species. But I've also been sampling what lives in the pots as well in the field. So the algae and the, the snails and the starfish. The last count that I looked at was 28 species in the flower pots that I didn't find on the seawall at that time. With so much of the harbour degraded, where are the pockets of biodiversity that are now colonising these flower pots coming from? Yeah. Okay, we have to be careful when we use the term degraded. So these are altered landscapes. And if you put them in the context of what would have been here pre-1788, yes, they're degraded. But if you looked at the marine environment 10, 15 years ago, it was probably a lot worse than it is now. And the harbour is being rehabilitated largely as industry, um, industrial outputs decline, water use is getting better, people are managing water inputs into the harbour, Commercial fishing's banned in Sydney Harbour. Recreational fishing is a significant input, but, or a significant output really, because the fish are taken out of the harbour. The marine environment in Sydney is probably getting better. And we can tell that because we're getting more big sharks, we're getting more big fish. And as people gradually clean up the estuary, I, I can see that getting better. But what we've got to men- remember is that we're not necessarily aiming for pre-1788 conditions we're actually trying just to make the environments better than they were are now or were 20 years ago. So what does it sound like in Blackwattle Bay below the surface of the water just near the seawall? The tide is coming in. Those clicking sounds are the shrimps feeding. And what about inside the flower pots where some oysters and crabs are sheltering among the algae? That was the sound of a crab scurrying away from the microphone. Oh, oh there's one. 
And we've got lots of red algae in this one, oysters. And then there's a little snail, the Bembetium. We find that a lot on the seawalls as well. They move in and they're the ones, the eggs we found. Wait, there's a crab on the edge and I can yeah, see one moving, one moving inside, inside. as well. Yeah. Um, and the algae you're talking about looks like a tiny little miniature forest and it's sort of greeny brown. It's not bright green. That's amazing. I mean, it's, you know, what, 40, 30 centimetres? 30 centimetres deep and 40 centimetres across and you can see what eight species just standing here. Yeah and it's great because when you get down to the pot as well if you look through all the algae you have all the little species that are hiding in it so we get a lot of starfish, like a little crab eating the algae and um, the fish will hide around the algae as well and then we get sponges in the bottom of the pots often. Along the bottom of the seawall, there's a huge build-up of very sharp-looking shells. Yes, yes, they're oysters. We have like an oyster bed that forms at the mid-tide level on the seawall. And that's good to encourage as well, actually, if, if there's things we can do to the seawall to encourage an oyster reef or an oyster bed, because lots of animals live in between the oysters. Oysters are really good at filtering the water, so they can improve the water quality, which is what some people are also trying to do on seawalls is seed them with say kelp and oysters to improve the environmental quality of the water. We're just near the Anzac Bridge in Sydney today in Glebe. I'm standing with Associate Professor Ross Coleman and PhD student Rebecca Morris. We're all staring at what is essentially a flower pot flat on the side that is hard up against the wall. It's got a crab in it hiding behind a piece of algae. It's engrossing to watch this crab, despite the sound of the nearby concrete plant and the barges and the roar of traffic over the Anzac Bridge. This little 50-cent-sized crustacean has us all mesmerised. We all fall silent, deep in thought about life, the universe and everything. Well, at least I was. I was more thinking about whether the... The pots, how far apart the pots have to be to function independently. So we put them five metres apart, largely because we had very specific questions about things happening at the pot scale. And most rock pools and rocky shores, and in natural environments, are much closer than that. Would we achieve greater biodiversity effects by having, say, three together as a unit, and then a gap, and then another three together? And that's that's a future research question. Having worked on the size of these, we've, we know now that the small ones just dry out too quickly and they just don't work, and that these size pots are, are optimal. Then questions arise about the surface of the pots. At the moment they're smooth because that's the way they're made, but should we make them rough as well? Um, and should we attach other features such as soft materials to mimic algae? So for the moment we had to wait for the algae to arrive. If we then added something that would mimic that, something natural, not plastic preferably, that would mimic the way the algae already are. We might enhance recruitment by other things and maybe get the pot to colonise faster than just bare concrete. And then the other question is the material of the concrete. Many concretes contain plastics, particularly marine concretes, and we know that microplastic in the marine environment is now a developing a significant problem. So what seems like a simple idea, putting flower pots into altered shorelines to create a bit of habitat, is anything but simple. Think about it. 
It's not just how to keep the crabs happy. It's also about the forces of the water. The push and pull of the tide might affect the structural integrity of the wall. We have done some work on crevices and they do matter, but the crevices create an engineering problem in that they have, they have weak points in the wall. So having the engineers get a little bit nervous. So what we're trying to do is if we build outwards, then we can have structures that have those irregularities and bigger gaps and smaller gaps. But there is a limit and we're not trying to mimic rocky shores because we can't, because rocky shores also are largely horizontal with a little bit of verticals. Whereas here we've got something that's predominantly vertical with a little bit of horizontal. So what we're trying to do is take those features which we know biodiversity responds to and then put them into an environment that is otherwise sterile, it's a desert, to improve the levels of biodiversity around. Basically, we worked out that it costs $300 per pot to deploy. So in a seawall development that may cost millions of dollars, it falls out, it's trivial, it's small change. And the other advantage to the end users is that should the world change and some people decide they want different structures, they can take them out again. One of the things that Sydney Council and others want to know is how many do we put up? How far away are they? How long should we leave them for? What other uses? This sort of habitat creation, in a sense, reminds me of how sometimes people put up nest boxes for birds or possums and things like that. But sometimes putting up a nest box can actually degrade a habitat. Do you think that there's potential for a similar thing to happen? I don't think so because the habitat that it's on is already pretty degraded. So I guess the only way is up really with these flower pots as long as we get different species to the pots then we've increased biodiversity. I suppose the only thing is is if we attract invasive species rather than the native species. Seawalls are often in areas where there's lots of boats and so they can bring them in and they form connections for invasive species to move around. It is known that these kind of seawalls attract invasive species anyway so that could be the one problem. So you've hinted at a couple of things for the next year and onwards for the flower pot project. We've had such an exponential growth in species numbers in this project so far. What would you expect to happen in the next 12 months? It will plateau off, I would imagine. So we've put the new habitat in, we've got a lot of species come, and now I imagine it will get to a point where it will plateau off and we'll get a few new ones come in, a few ones leave, but probably not the exponential growth that we saw when we put a new habitat in. So why is this one your favourite? Because it always has lots of things in it. (laughs) So I I noticed that when I sample it so regularly that I guess like rock pools, natural rock pools, some of them have lots of things in and some of them only have a few species. So it's it's quite different between each pot there. There's lots of variation in the species you find in each one. So what's the significance then of this flower pot project in a broader developmental sense? Our project, although it's been going for longer than the other guys in Sydney Harbour, is actually part of a wider understanding of putting artificial structures into Sydney Harbour. Professor Chapman has been doing this since 1996. Recently UNSW have been involved in the development of Barangaroo, so we can see that just over the way. They're looking at enhancements at the subtitle level. So between all of us working in Sydney, we're actually looking at a variety of different strategies to ensure that when we build stuff, we actually put biodiversity back in. 
Um, and there is, as always, there's a new term for this. We call it green engineering. And that seems to be the catch-all of pulling biodiversity back into urbanised developments. And Sydney is quite far advanced. We're not the, the leading city, which is probably Seattle, because they've got just a wider variety of all these structures done. But we are an example all over the world, largely because of G. Chapman's interest in trying to find what are the underlying principles that increase biodiversity and then translating those principles scientifically into stuff that developers and engineers can actually do in a realistic and cost-effective manner. And so that includes flower pots. What, what other sorts of things might that include? So that would include things such as putting in rubble fields at the bottom of seawalls. Um, you could also have rough structures. So if you think biodiversity responds to the habitat variation. So engineers on the whole tend to like very smooth, clean structures. But that isn't very good for biodiversity. So it's working out how we can the engineers can put in irregular features, depths, surfaces, topography, that sort of thing. Everything that we know that organisms respond to give you a variety of organisms. And some of those are quite significant engineering challenges if you're building the foundations for a big development such as Barangaroo. Do they really want to fuss around making little tiles and various other bits and pieces? So a lot of effort working on things that you can retrofit. So not only in new developments but also adding them to existing developments. Marine ecology is actually behind the curve for these urbanised and green engineering projects. These flower pots represented a opportunity to improve an environment and we're not trying to make it pristine, what we're trying to do is just make things better. Ross Coleman is now a full professor with the University of Sydney and Rebecca Morris has wrapped up her PhD and I got her on the phone to see where the flower pot project actually ended up. So in the first 18 months um, that we did the surveys, we found an 80% total increase in the number of species that were using the seawall because of the flower pots. It seems incredible and did it last? That's the next question. So in the pots, we found species that would be typical of natural rock pools, algae, um, mollusks, starfish. Um, however, there were some species that were not present in the flower pots that are quite common in natural rocky shores. And whether that was because we didn't survey for a long enough time is unknown. And so the plan is actually with some colleagues from UNSW and the Sydney Institute of Marine Science this year is actually to go back and sample all of the eco-engineering structures, including the flower pot seven years after their deployments. The key thing that we've discovered so far is that multiple habitats are key. And so that's uh, the approach that the Living Seawolves team are taking in Sydney now, using multiple tiles with multiple habitats to maximise biodiversity. Are you aware uh, whether there are any further developments with the flower pots, you know, as in a commercial product or a rollout at any sites? The flower pots in their form that I, I researched weren't rolled out in any other places that I know of. I know that they have been doing different kinds of flower pots in places like the United Kingdom. I was involved in the World Harbour Project that was also led by the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. 
And the results were quite variable depending on which harbour they were in globally. So it is, it's, it's a challenge and I'm not sure that one eco-engineering structure would, would be universal across different sites. So when we spoke, which is years ago now, you were still writing your PhD. So what are you up to these days? So currently I'm a lecturer at Melbourne Uni now and my research is looking more at not using seawalls at all for protection against erosion and flooding, but actually looking more at natural habitat. Things like mangroves and salt marshes and shellfish reefs can actually provide natural coastal protection through wave attenuation and sediment accumulation. And so we're looking at different ways of restoring these habitats for coastal defence. Dr Rebecca Morris. I'm Ann Jones and you've been listening to Off Track. I'll meet you near the water at the same time next week because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.